This is my conversation with Kevin Kelly, senior maverick at Wired magazine. He co-founded Wired in 1993 and served as its executive editor for its first seven years. His newest book is Excellent Advice for Living, a book of 450 modern proverbs for good living. He is co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, a membership organization that champions long-term thinking and acting as a good ancestor for future generations. And he is a co-founder of the popular Cool Tools website, which has been reviewing tools daily for 20 years. From 1984 to 1990, Kelly was publisher and editor of the Whole Earth Review, a subscriber-supported journal of unorthodox conceptual news. He co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved with the launch of the Well, a pioneering online service started in 1985. Other books by Kevin Kelly include The Inevitable, a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Out of Control, his 1994 classic book on decentralized emergent systems, The Silver Cord, a graphic novel about ro robots and angels, What Technology Wants, a, ro a robust theory of technology, and Vanishing Asia, his 50-year project to photograph the disappearing cultures of Asia. He is best known for his radical optimism about the future. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? Thank you for Hi. inviting me. Thank you for coming in. It's an absolute honor. Uh, I just wanted to start from like the beginning. You've got a very interesting past. You kind of dropped out of college and then you started working. How did that start? And then what got you interested in so many different fields? I've always been a <clears throat> learner, lifelong learner, even as a kid, very curious and made lots of things. I like to make things as a way of interacting with the world. And, um, for some reason, I um, decided that school was not my best learning avenue, and I dropped out and wound up going to Asia almost accidentally because of a friend who invited me there while he was living there studying. I had no idea about Asia. I'd never eaten even Chinese food or anything. It was a completely different world back in the... 1960s and I grew up and <clears throat> that was a big shock to me was um, being introduced to this vast landscape and very diverse world. I mean, the differences between Turkey and Korea is as vast than anything in the U.S. And I <clears throat> started to treat this uh, experience as my university. So uh, Asia became the place that I was learning, and I found myself mm, enjoying that process of always learning and not always having my mind change, maybe is the best way to put it. And um, that became maybe more of a habit. And I, I was not as interested in technology then. In fact, I was kind of avoiding it. I didn't own very much. And I owned almost very little. I mean, I had my backpack, and later on I had a bicycle, but that was about it. And so I didn't really change and uh, become interested in technology until the very beginnings of the computer world. And when I 
took a computer that was in the laboratory that I worked in at work, plugged it into the telephone. And there was this world that was emerging on the other side, bulletin boards and online stuff. And that was the first time I felt that there was a technology that was organic and kind of human scale and Amish in its nature. And then I became really interested in that online world <clears throat> of passions and interests and the way collaboration was happening and the way it could change how people did things. And that eventually I was involved in starting some of the public access to the internet. And that was the beginning of me re-looking at technology and trying to see it with a different face. <clears throat> and I saw that there was actually an element of that organic sense in all technologies. And so I became much more interested in, in that technological version of things as a way forward from that original experience of plugging in a Apple IIe computer to the phone line. And then how did that involve? Because you've like you like recently written a book about life advice uh, and wisdom that you want to like, you know, share with people. Uh, and then you've also spoken about technology. You've, you've like dipped your toes in almost anything and everything. And you've yeah. not just done it like briefly. You've done it with excellence. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can say I get bored easily and, 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 and move on. Um, I, I had the, um, so like I do, I do daily art every day. I do art and most people, if they're doing art every day, will develop a style and that's a much better way. I think if you want to be a successful artist, but I'm not trying to be a successful artist. My goal with my art every day is to surprise myself. I want to do something surprising to me. And so every day is different. Every day's art is different. And then now I'm doing AI art, and it's the same thing. I'm trying to surprise myself. So I like to be surprised. And that means constantly changing and trying different things and trying to see um, um, the limits of stuff and trying to expand my horizons. That's my style. So my style is trying new stuff and trying to surprise myself and trying to be surprised. And um, so I naturally try different things. You know, I'll try and I'm not musical at all. I can't sing, but I'll try to make some something musical because I've never tried that before. It seems like a, a thing to try. I'll try to make a font for a time. I don't really, I don't have any expertise or any reason to, but it would be this kind of an interesting thing to try. And I might learn something from that. So. So that's sort of my, my, what I'm trying to optimize. What I'm trying to optimize in life is learning, my learning, and also I'm trying to increase or optimize the tools for other people to learn. That's why I share, because I want others to have the same joy that I have in learning. And so I'm trying to optimize the tools that allow us or allow anybody to learn. How, how is how is that mentality very different? Like, because, you know, it's a very unique thing because a lot of people, I'm, I mean, I've come across, I work in a creative industry myself, and some people just want to protect their ideas. They mm. want to keep it like, <clears throat> yeah. How, how do you navigate that and what made you think differently? 
Yeah, well, that's that's a really good question. That's an important question. Um, one of the things that, that I learned, and it was sort of in this little book of excellent advice for living stuff that I wish I knew earlier. It took me a long time to learn. I really wish I, I knew it when I was younger. Was that in order to make something really good, you have to kind of keep remaking it. <clears throat> and you, the, the builders say, you, you make one to throw away. And I, I didn't really understand that when I was younger. I, I thought that having to remake something was like a total failure. That that was like, that meant that you weren't very good. That meant that... Um, I mean, e even the idea was sort of like, oh, I have to remake this? There's so much trouble to make it the first time. I'm going to make it again. But there are many ways to, 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 to make that easier, that remaking. And it became like that's the real key to making something really, really good is you have to kind of do it over and over again. I was recently reading about the Hamilton Broadway musical, The Big Hit, they workshop that for years and years and years, remaking it again and again and again. That's why it was so good. So, um, so, so now when I'm making something, I try to prototype it first, whether it's a book or a table or a design, a read kitchen, whatever it is, I'm going to prototype it first, maybe make it out of cardboard or make a, I'm, this book was prototyped. I made a smaller version of it myself. But you bind it by hand, the whole thing. You prototype and you kind of, you expect to remake it. You expect to rewrite it multiple times. You expect to um, make a version of it and then throw that version away and make another version of it. That's how you get really great stuff. And so um, I wish I had known that when I was younger because it would, I would have gotten to this point where you, I can make better things now because I am willing to throw them away and remake them. And so this pertains to your question because um, the only way you can make a really great idea is to have a lot of bad ideas, is to throw away a lot of bad ideas. And the only way you can throw away a lot of bad ideas is, is if you are convinced that you have a lot of ideas in you, that you can, that you, you can afford to waste them in that sort of respect. So, so that's one of the benefits of a daily practice. One of the benefits of doing something every day, like writing every day or making art every day, is that you get in the habit of just producing things that you know you're going to throw away. Okay. And so um, whether it's a songwriter, you're going to write a lot of songs. So there's this idea of kind of like doing things in volume as a habit to persuade yourself that there's more ideas where that came from. So you're not you're not precious. You're not holding on to an idea. You're you're able to let it go because you are making them every day, and you're just generating. They're just one of many. And if you don't like that idea, I have another idea. So that's one way that you can help to um, be generous with your ideas is to produce lots of them and make it a habit of always producing them on an ongoing basis. The second thing I've learned. I don't think I mentioned in the book, but um, I think the um, what I learned was um, actually there is a little bit in the book, and and the book is this idea of trying to do something that only you can do. So I say, don't aim to be the best, which is probably what your parents taught you. Aim to be the aim to be the only. 
Try to be the only one doing it, not the not the best person. You want to be the best basketball. You want to be inventing a whole new sport. You you want to be trying to do something that's only and and so what I learned at, at like at Wired the way for me to do that was to give away ideas. And here's why. So whenever I'm working on something, I will tell everybody I, I know about it as much as I can. My hope is that someone will steal this idea. Because if they steal that idea, that means that someone else could have done this idea, which means that I shouldn't do it. So it's kind of a relief. And so I'll be trying to give away my ideas. And this is what I was doing at Wired as an editor, is basically I have an idea, and I'm trying to find someone else to write it. And I'll try to pitch it to this person, uh, this person here. And I, I keep getting turned down. Nobody likes this idea. But I think it's a really good idea. And in the end, after years of trying to give away this idea, I decide this is such a good idea. Nobody, I can't get anybody to do it. That means I have to do it. And that would be my best idea. That would be the best thing I did. So, so giving away, trying to give away ideas for me is a way to arrive at doing something that only I can do. Because if I can't give it away or, or I, I, um, nobody else wants to do it, and I still think it's a good idea. That means I'm the only. That means that I'm the only one. So it's a test in certain senses. It's a filter. So I'm very generous in ideas. And what we know about ideas is ideas are actually are cheap. Even good ideas are cheap. It's the execution of them. It's actually how you what you bring to it that's hard. And so I have no fear about ideas being stolen because if it's a really good idea, it's going to be really hard to do no matter who does it. And if someone else does it, that's great because I don't have to do it. That means it's not meant for me. So, um, so I am in general for the obvious reasons of you want to kind of generate a lot of ideas. Most of your ideas aren't going to be that valuable, but they're only way to get to the good ideas. And the good ideas are only great if only you can do them. So give away your ideas. Just have an open heart in a way like, just share, like your uh, advice that you're written in this book. A lot of people would protect them. Just like, you know, this is something that I like. I have, like, through my experience, this is my, like, hard-earned wisdom. And you're share, giving them away. What inspired you beyond that to write this book? I wanted, um, I, I like to have things that I can remind myself about, that I remember, little heuristics, we call them in computer science. And, um, Rules of thumb, things that guiding principle, proverbs. I, I, I work best. So, for instance, uh, one of the bits of advice that I give in the book is this idea that <clears throat> if you if you have something in your house but you can't find it, and then eventually you look around and you find it, and it's a you know say it's a flashlight like this. Um, when you put it back, don't put it back where you found it. Put it back for where you first looked for it, because that's where you're going to find it again, where you first looked for it. So I, so I tell myself that little thing. Each, when I find something, I say, okay, when you find something, put it back to where you first looked for it. So that little proverb is something that I want for myself. So I, in some senses, wrote the book kind of to make these little memorable tweets that I could help myself remember and that I wish I'd known Earlier, so some of the some of the advice, like that piece of advice I just mentioned, I didn't, I didn't kind of 
realize that until recently, until like five years ago or six years ago. I wish I'd known that earlier. So I decided for my children to write down these kinds of things that they could maybe put into a little memory, like a little proverb that they could repeat to themselves and help them remember. Because I would do the hard work of taking a whole book full of wisdom and try to reduce it down to a single sentence, which is what I was trying to do. Take something really complicated and big, important, and turn it into one sentence. And that's what I spent most of my time trying to do is reduce it, distill it down like a, like a brandy or to a gemstone. And so, um, um, and, and to pass them on to my kids or anyone else young at heart as a way for them to kind of have this thing so they could kind of recall, oh yeah, so like another piece of advice is um, when you see two sides to an argument, two contentious issues with two sides, try and find the third side that triangulation can break the logjam of the dilemma between two sides. So that I, I repeat myself when I hear something, there's two sides. It's like, what is the third side? Cause that's often a way out of that dilemma. Can you get, give us an example of what that would look like in a, a real life situation? You mean the third side? Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. So like, um, uh, this is sort of maybe a trivial, thing but maybe you'll understand in in the u.s politics for a long time there was a tremendous dilemma between racism between white and black so you say well what about asians <laughs> okay where do they fit in so you, you so you triangulate so that ooh, okay well all right so that's that's an example um or you can take any other contentious issue that seems to have, uh, you know, kind of like um, big government, small government. Well, what about like I don't know, private government? So you 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 triangulate, you 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 disturb the the dilemma, you break up the dilemma by offering a, a third option. I lost you there for a second, but I think we're back. Okay. Um, sorry. So you've traveled extensively throughout your life and have traveled, has travel impacted uh, your perspective on life? And what advice would you give to someone? Uh, and would you tell them to travel more? And what benefits yeah. like, would they gain from it? Yeah. I, I think tra uh, travel was very influential to me. It formed me to such an extent that I can't even really account for it. But I, I do believe in the value of travel, particularly among young people. I believe it's so valuable that I think that we, certainly our country, but maybe other countries, should subsidize travel for young people. We should pay them to travel in a certain sense. We should make it easy for them to travel because it will make them better people, better citizens, you know, just overall better and what it does, particularly when you're young, is that it opens up your horizons. It, it makes it much easier to understand the commonality among humanity. At the same time, to be accepting of differences and um, tolerating um, different ways of things. But mostly what it does is it helps promote um, thinking different. And that is the engine 
of the new economy is being able to think differently. And that's a really hard thing to, to, to it's a hard skill to learn. I think traveling helps you that because it will force you to change your mind, change your mind as part of this thinking differently. It will um, uh, prod you to think about things from a different angle, to actually see different solutions that other people have come up with to the same perennial problems of like how to organize a city or build a building. And um, so, so it's, it's, um, and it's visceral. You kind of have to, you have to contend with the, with these differences. So not just theoretical or something you read, you can feel it, you can taste it, you can see it. <clears throat> so, um, um, I, I think if every young person had a mandatory global, had a mandatory national service, no matter where they were born, and that included uh, being able to serve outside of the country at another place, um, and that was all paid for the, by the government, I think that would be radically transforming, particularly for Americans who tend to not travel very far. Um, and because we have a big country, there's not a lot of reason to. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 I think it's paramount. Now, I have some advice about how to travel. Um, and one of the advices when you have voluntary travel, you're traveling because you want to, is you want to leave as much stuff behind as possible. Part of the benefits of traveling is that you're leaving home and you are encountering voluntary discomfort you're you're embracing the discomfort as a means to change your routine to have you solve problems in a different way not rely on the existing solutions to um strip down and to see what's actually important in your life there's tons of reasons to leave stuff behind not least of which is that it's just easier to move around when you don't have a lot of stuff to move. So, um, so that's one bit of advice is um, leave as much stuff behind as possible. And I mean that literally like don't take half the stuff you were planning to take. You'll, you'll enjoy your trip more and you'll become a better person to the, another practical bit of, of vacation travel, which is, um, when you're traveling, go to the most remote place that you intend to go on your trip first. And then work your way back to the big capital city where you'll probably fly out of. And that what that does is it kind of it maximizes the different the otherness. It maximizes you go right from where you are in your home to some remote village somewhere that you plan to go. And it's like maximum otherness. You're confronting it making mistakes are cheaper there than in the city. And then after you've had some time in this remote area, you'll be so ready to come back to the uniformness of the big city, which is not going to be that much different from your own city, but you'll be ready for that. And you'll be paying attention to what is different rather than just kind of, Oh, it's another big city. So that's my experience in doing many, many, many um, trips overseas with myself and family and big groups is Go to the remote place directly from the airport. Do not stop and then come back to the big city. You've written about the importance of finding a sense of purpose. How can a person find that? And what advice would you give to someone who's lost um, and uncertain of their path in life? 
Yeah, there are two bits of information. One from the book, which is that um, and the common response is to find your bliss and to follow your bliss. But the problem with a lot of young people is they don't know what their passions are. They may not have any or, or any that they see. And it's sort of paralyzing. It's like, well, I can't give my 100% to that because I don't know what my passion is. I don't want to give my passion to something that's not 100%. My my response and the and the the research shows that what you want to do is almost at random, if need be, master something. Choose something. It doesn't matter what it is. Choose it and become masters of it. Meaning that you excel at it. You you try to improve every day. You get better and better at it. That skill will then enable you to move in a certain direction that will eventually come to your bliss. The, the way you find your bliss. And your passion is to master something and move from it. Um, so you're not going to end up where you started. Very few of us end up where we started. So where you started doesn't really matter as long as you keep moving. So just so just start somewhere, master, become try to become world class in something, and that will give you the tools and the direction and the base to find your bliss. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing is um, don't aim to be the best, be the only. And you want to be working on something that they don't have a name for. You, you, want, you want to be working on something that's very hard to describe, but there's no language for it. There's no words for it. It takes a long time to explain to your mother what it is. It's sort of like, that's good. That means that you are out front and more likely to be working on something that's the only because it's, it's new it's because we don't have names and so um that's not always possible but to the extent that it is possible work on something that we don't have words for your book includes a lot of like personal anecdotes and stories how did you decide between what you wanted to include versus what you wanted to take off that's so, a very tough decision editing yeah, so Excellent Advice for Living, the name of my book, which is, looks like this right here for those who have video. Um, I want it to be practical as much as possible. I want it to be actionable. There's a lot of advice which is sort of general. So I wanted it to be actionable that, that would actually be something you could do, imp implement in your own life that would change your behavior. I wanted it to be... Um, Memorable, of course, that was the other um, attempt to reduce everything to a little tiny tweetable adage. And that took a lot of work. And then I, I was also, by temperament, and I think by design, I wanted it to be positive and encouraging and kind in a certain sense, because that's what I'm advocating. I think that kindness is powerful and compassion is powerful and I wanted I wanted the book itself to be kind and compassion as well and so um, so there I do emphasize um, perpetual kindness and um, being kind rather than being right and so those three for were the filters for me was could I reduce it a whole book of wisdom into one sentence is it reducible? Can I make it practical? And 
is it kind? And I think the fourth one was I wanted to well, the, the kind of the first. I wanted to make it memorable. I wanted, wanted you to be able to to re, be reminded of it, to remind yourself about it as well. You're speaking about being kind. Um, what's important of cultivating compassion and empathy? Why is it so important to build those qualities in your qualities in your life? And how does it play a, a part in creating a better world? Well, there's a there's there's a weird paradox in being kind and being generous, and that is it's the most selfish thing you can do. Okay, that's the paradox. The paradox is that the most selfish thing you do, the thing that you can do the best for you, is to be kind and generous to others. All right, like if you want to get a lot of things. You give away things, all right. I mean, that's weird. It's that, that that's the paradox, but that seems to be the way the universe is constructed. That being generous and giving to others is the best way to help yourself. Um, being kind is the best way that people treat you well. It's kind of weird, but. That seems to be the universal rule, and so, um, so I would say, to the selfish person, if you are really selfish, you should be as generous and kind as you can be. And how does that help you as a person in your, in terms of your self worth and psyche? Because a lot of people struggle with mental health issues, and they really try to find like what works for them, and depression, and all of these things really does not help in being compassionate towards others because you're you're in your own lost yeah, thoughts yeah 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 everybody the surprising thing is is that people struggle mentally is is is, is very very common that's the first thing it's almost the first lessons for most people struggling is to understand that they're not alone that this is almost a universal thing and to some degree most people experience at some point in their lives so that's the first thing is that yeah you're this is completely normal and secondly um we all have different um we're assigned our bodies and and minds and we have very little control over it and some are given nice fancy machines and some are given kind of jalopies and so it's unfair but everybody each one of us can improve in what we've been given and so while some people are naturally optimistic and naturally generous they need to improve and get more so and those who are not naturally can also improve in that direction so so even with work you may not be as kind and compassionate as someone else just because of what you started with but you can be better than you were before. And that's really the point. The point is not where we are in relation to each other. The point is where we are in relation to where we started. You've spoken about uh, the importance of embracing failure and risk. Can you talk uh, about your time in the past where you faced some, a setback and how did you bounce back and what did you learn from the experience? Well... That's one of the difference, uh, you know, we were talk, talking about struggles. <clears throat> well, 
one of the one of the things we observe the science is observed and scholars and child psychologists studying this is that um uh children vary in their natural optimism but any child can be taught to be more optimistic than they were and what that usually consists of is the optimistic person or the optimistic child views failure as temporary setbacks are temporary setbacks are not a reflection of them they're just um something that they're, they're a temporary moment and so um so that's one way to choose to be lucky we, we we say which is to understand that any setbacks are just temporary and and that's a huge thing which is nonetheless hard for some people to do because they might have been told all their lives that they're stupid or that they're no good or that they're unlucky or they may tell that story themselves that they're victims and that this has been done to them and so they have and so um it's it's a harder job for them to to understand that the these hurdles and setbacks are te are temporary that they can be overcome and that's that's hard but that is that is the difference is is to see and to believe that the hurdles you have before us are are possible to overcome and are just temporary and and it's kind of a it's a belief as i talk about in the book what i call a pronoia it's a belief an acceptance that actually the universe is conspired to help you succeed and again if you are in a world where you are not valued you're you're prejudice you know, there's prejudice against you there's systematic prejudice there's institutional racism there's indigenous um patriot uh, patriarchalism th th it's very hard to overcome many of those institutional and system um hurdles but it's not impossible because people do it all the time and um so the optimistic person decides in a certain sense that um they're going to treat these things even if they don't know how they're going to treat them as things that can be overcome how does one as a daily practice build these like you know thought processes that like is there that formula the structure to think the way that you do because a lot of people yes i can read a book but then how do i take that into yeah. face value and like actually change as a person yeah it's it's hard um but what we know is that it's um it's easier to it's easy to change your behavior it's easier to act out the change rather than to think out the change so you start with this very very small little steps you decide to i you know i will i will pretend to be more optimistic than i really am than i feel and i will act as if i'm optimistic and that acting out actually can allow you to be more optimistic than you were so there's something again strange about being in our bodies and being in real life and being among people which is that um this idea of acting out 
things is a very, very powerful way to induce behavior changes. Um, the uh, the um, habit people talk about making the habit as easy as possible, making kind of easier to do than not do. So you can set up a habit where you try to make it easier to be optimistic than to be pessimistic by um, maybe say like, I don't know, um, you could have sayings around you or something, or the first thing you say, or you have a, you, you, you change your language to reflect an optimistic viewpoint. Instead of talking about, I'm afraid of this, or I'm afraid of that, you say, I believe this, or I hope that. And so you, you have little tiny habits that you institute that are easy to do that can allow you to act into something that's important and big. And then over time, you actually can inhabit that. You can actually come to really believe that. And then you can then try to act your way into the next step. How would you know if you are getting in your own way? Because one of the biggest things, of, like steps of uh, changing and evolving as a human being is to recognize. It is very difficult for a lot of people to recognize their biggest hurdles, their biggest flaws. Yeah, you're right. It is hard. One of the bits of advice I have in the book is that um, pay a lot of attention to the things that irritate you and other people that tick them off because those are probably things that are important to you. So if you're irritated or annoyed by somebody else and what they do, that's actually a signal about your own self. That's a, that's one way you can see your own hangups and your own hurdles is by seeing what you find irritating in other people. And how does one, like change from there. Like I'll give you an example for me. Like I hate it when someone's late. Like it pisses right. me off. And right. uh, that's something that like for me, if I am getting late, I start panicking. Like I have to have right, enough right, time, right. like at least an hour's time. Like this is the window for any emergency, anything that happens right, right, right. so that I'm prepared. So so you have to say to yourself, what is that what is that signal about me? What is that saying about me? What 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 is that um indicate if i am so annoyed by other people getting late then why does that annoy me what so why does that annoy you what is fundamentally um uh disturbing the issue with me for me is like okay do you not respect the other person's time so like right. if someone is there and they have agreed a, a, to meet a sp specific spot for example right. you are also aware of the factors that could be traffic or uh, the amount of time it takes you to get ready and get out of the house uh if you're getting late did you call the person saying hey fyi i'm stuck in traffic i'm gonna be late not right. bothering to do that until the person like you know reaches out and goes like okay you're late what's happening unless it's an emergency it doesn't make it's impolite for me it's like it's disrespectful as well right and so um and so that that disrespect um it's, it's a kind of compassion you're saying in a certain sense being prompt is, is 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 you're you're trying to think of yourself in other people's shoes and when someone else is not doing it they're not being considerate of you right they're not considering your time and um so does it 
prevent you from being compassionate about them and they're um, are you assuming that this was deliberate or that they're being careless? Could it have been a real reason to? Um, do, are you ever, do you ever find yourself being compassionate about someone else's lateness? No, I, 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 I don't mind at all if it happens once in a while, but if it's a very, it's a, it's a complete pattern that's just repeating itself without any rhyme or reason. That's mm -hmm. when I go like, okay, so you, you don't care, like you make promises and then you don't continue to stick to them. Right, right. So, right. And so that says that you value or that you there's something in you about about honoring your word and being reliable that you probably care about and you want to be sure that you're not like that, right? And so that's a way to think about to see to, to examine in your own life it, it, it it's all all it is is this is you asked is there, is there some way for people to become aware of what is the hurdles in their own life and this is one method if you if you begin to ask yourself well, why am i disturbed by that reliability do i have do i have a tendency to not be reliable am i trying to overcompensate um, why do I think um, reliability is so important compared to other um, virtues? And so it's a it's a mechanism for you to to think about your own your own priorities and values and where they come from and whether you are that way or is this a way for you to become better in that direction? That's opened a lot of doors for me to explore. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, yes. Okay. So I'm going to swiftly, swiftly move to a different question. I don't want to get too personal, but uh, you've spoken extensively about the future of technology and its impact on society. Now we are at the uh, edge of AI being taking over a lot of our jobs, mm -hmm. uh, and it's rapidly increasing. It's so fast, like uh, it is, there's no escaping it. Even the way uh, the education system is running is going to change completely. So. What are your thoughts on that? How do you see it evolving? Because you you've sounded the alarm long ago. Well, it's not an alarm. I'm I'm just a trumpet. It's a, it's this is all good news. Um, I'm very very excited um, by AI, and um, I I think as I've written, there's a there's a panic cycle that generally societies go through a series of panics and alarms about it that are not necessary. And I think when we make decisions based on panic or fear, and we make stupid mistakes. Um, so, I, so, so I'm trying to change the conversation to talk about the many opportunities that are arising through AI. Um, I don't want to, I'm not going to dismiss the problems. I'm just going to say, I think we gain more by focusing on our opportunities rather than the problems. Um, and there are huge opportunities arising from these new technologies. Um, I think there is a amount of hype in it. It's not going to solve everything. These the, 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 They're only going to become valuable if they're useful to us, and they're already proving to be useful. That usefulness is very constrained, but it's, it is useful. So... The generative AI ones like Chat, 
GPT, like the Dolly and the image generators, some of the new music generators, they're useful to us as like the universal intern. They're assist their assistants. We're gonna work with them and we're gonna produce nice, cool stuff. And they can produce by themselves some stuff, but that is not that interesting. It's mostly kind of background stuff. So the kinds of things that AIs can produce right now, the kind of creativity they have is a lowercase creativity that can be used to fill in areas that we don't have any art that are blank right now. So like we can put images where no images have been because they're generated by AI. We can put soundtracks where there's no sound right now because it can be generated by AI. We can make up reports and summaries that don't exist because of AI. But when we come to making things that we pay attention to as humans, like you know, great artwork, great music, great writing, there's going to be a human involved. And we're going to partner with the AI because they think differently. And together, we can work together to make something. And that's what we see so far with the best AI art is that um, it takes hours and hours and hours. It's not just pushing a button. It's working and having a conversation with the AI back and forth. And some people are better at it than others. I call them the AI whisperers. <laughs> and they know how to talk to them. And each of the AIs so far are very different in their personalities, what, they're, what they can do, what they're useful for. So I'm making art, AI art every day. And I'll use some, like Midjourney, if I want a painterly, arty, image if i want more photographic i'll use dolly because they've been trained differently and they are engineered differently and so over time we're going to have thousands of these ais in plural all engineered to do different things and having slightly different personalities and some people will be more attractive to one than the other and that's perfectly okay but they're going to the relationship will be as a partner as an intern as an assistant as a guide as a um, um, coach, th those are that is the relationship that we're going to have with these, and um, uh, nobody's going to lose your job. So, how but then this is the current state of affairs with AI. Don't you think it might evolve to a point where it would not require just prompts, but it would be able to like self engineer problems and then solve it? Not really. Um, as I said, yes, there'll be a use for the AIs to generate things by themselves where we don't have anything right now. The, the thing about AIs to understand is that their intelligence fundamentally, at the very basis, is, is run on a different material, silicon, with a different kind of logic structure so that and, and they will get smarter over time they'll get more intelligent and eventually they'll have some kind of consciousness but that all is not going to be human-like it's alien these are artificial aliens the the the, the their, their sense of humor will be alien their sense of creativity will be alien and we see that already their contributions will be alien and that is the main benefit of them. 
first of all, we can't really make them human unless we make them into the same kind of material. And secondly, we don't want to make them human. We want them to think differently because thinking different is the value. So, so, so the benefit of working with an AI is they don't think like humans because we, can, we have tons of humans to work with. We want different AIs because they will help us think a little differently. They'll be able to solve problems with us that we can't solve and vice versa. Them alone, they're not, they may be very, very, very smart. And they may be very conscious, but they're not going to be human. And so they can't really, can't really serve us for what we want from them. So they'll have conversations with, with AI. They'll be very emotional. People will fall in love with them, but we fall in love with dogs. Dogs are not human. They're different. And we like them because they're different in that sense. So, yeah, we'll have relationships with AIs, but they will always be a little off. They're always going to be a little alien. It's like Spock in Star Trek. They'll be a partner with Kirk. And the whole point of Spock was that he was not a human. And so um, you could love them, you could interact with them, you could respect them, they could be creative. But the team of Spock and Kirk is better than neither of them by themselves. So how would the future job market look like? What kind of jobs would become redundant? Very few current jobs would be redundant. Most of the ones are ones that we don't want humans to have, like all the people working in Amazon warehouses, picking, picking your stuff to put in boxes. That's not a good use of humans. They're automating, they're putting robots, and the faster that happens, the better. So yes, all those people should be fired. They should all lose their jobs. Nothing would be better for the world if all the people working for Amazon lost their jobs. I mean, in the warehouses. There'll still be some to run the, to run the robots, to repair the robots, and that's what happens. Okay, so the people who are now picking things would wind up repairing the warehouse picking robots that become robot nannies or they're programming the robots or whatever. So, and that, that'd be a step up. That'd be good. That's a better use of them. So there are certain tasks like picking lettuce that we don't want humans to do or counting change in a, in a store. Like that's, that's not a job for a human to be doing. Um, so, um, um, I think that um, those are the exceptions, but most of us radiologists, lawyers, people making things, we're going to change what we do. We'll change the tasks of what we do and we'll um, work with the AIs and that'll become the new job description. Final question, uh, what's the most important lesson you've learned over the course of your life and how has that informed the advice that you have given in this book? Hmm. Well, um, I, I think I might be repeating some of the things I've said before, but I think the two things um, that I've learned is that this idea of the kind of the universal paradox that um, you can't be too kind, you can't be too generous, that those two things will, will repay you 
in a weirdly paradoxical way. And it seemed to be a, a very instrumental part of the universe. And if you accept that and welcome that in, that'll change your life for, for the better. The second one is we also mentioned, which is took me a long time to, to, to realize, um, but I found out that, that, that um, it's not just good enough to find something that I'm good at doing, finding something that I like to do, finding something I can get paid to do. Those th three things are really good. And for most people that are enough, but that the real, the real goal is to, as I say in the book, to arrive on the day before I die to say I have fully become myself. And that that is to do things that only I can do. And that's a much harder, higher bar. Um, but that is really the goal is to not be the best, but to be the only. That's wonderful. And where can people find your work? Where are you? Are you on social media or do you have a website? Yeah, I, I, I'm easy to find with my initials, kk.org, kk.org. Um, and uh, everything is there, my bio, my other books, this book, uh, Excellent Advice for Living, which is now available on Amazon. Um, it's a small little book, perfect for gift for young people, young at heart. And, um, and everything else that did include it, the Vanishing Asia book of my 50 years in Asia, my tech books are all all there so and i'm kevin to kelly on the on the social medias so i really appreciate your questions your interest in my work thank you for inviting me on your show i wish you the best success as well thank you so um, much be kind and <laughs> and uh, uh be the only mm -hmm.